Welcome to Building with Brick, Foundational Wisdom on Coaching, Careers, and Christ. This leadership podcast was spawned by Coach Brickner's book, So You Want to Be a Coach, which is the story of a corporate executive who made a drastic career change and became a head men's basketball coach. Dr. Brickner's book is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook on Amazon.com or go to his website, www.drjoebrickner.com. That's drjoebrickner.com. Now, here's this week's podcast. back everyone guest mike tharp international journalist he's been to six war zones he's told us it's absolutely amazing not only a great writer but a great person before the break we were talking about i said 16 years of catholic education mike corrected me and said it's actually 16 and a half years the semester at notre dame in their law school before he got drafted into the army Mike, how did that education shape you? It shaped me in several ways, Joe. One, it showed me the value of discipline, disciplining yourself and disciplining people around you if if there was an opportunity that arose like that. I don't mean being a bully, or I I just mean uh, being willing to speak out to my fellow students. I was taught by nuns all, all the way through high school, not exclusively, but mostly by nuns, Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. And they did not suffer fools gladly. In seventh grade, Sister Mary Clara carried a ruler around in her hand. And if you've seen the Blues Brothers, she's... <laughs> Just quite a representative of the nun in that movie. <laughs> she would she would come up behind students and push their faces this way and use the ruler on the backs of their hands. Of course, uh, it, it it was more comical to most of us until you got slapped. But the nun's commitment to education and to making us better, smarter, critically thinking kids was enormous. They didn't have any lives except us. So we were the focal point for all they did. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the priests. I was really influenced, as I mentioned earlier, by Father Thomas Santa, the vice principal of Hayden High School. And the principal, Father Raymond Davern, was an Irishman with still a thick brogue. And he was just a really nice guy. And then there was Father Ed Hayes, who was Mm -hmm. this charismatic guy coming right out of the 60s and embracing all of the cultural shifts and colors that were going on in that era. And he taught us that it was okay to be different that she didn't have to conform to everything, not not in any wild sense, but just in a, in a way that allowed your own creativity to emerge. He was really an inspiration in, in that way. And the whole experience, 16 and a half years, taught me so much about how to connect the dots 
and education and various subjects. I first got really excited about geography in fifth grade because Sister Leo Marie had maps all over one wall. And I used to love to go stand there and just look at all these places and think about, boy, I wish I could get to some of them. <laughs> and you probably and of did. Of course, later all on, I got to 61 <laughs> of them. Wow. The, the whole Catholic experience, of course, was uh, a mixed blessing in the sense that it did not allow for much dissent. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that was healthy. I thought that if you were confident enough in your beliefs, that you didn't have to trumpet them all the time the same way as everybody else was doing it. For example, I got kicked out of one class because I wouldn't pray at the, at the beginning of the class period. And as a result, I had to miss a basketball game. I was suspended because she said I wouldn't uh, stand and pray with the others before classes. That made me realize that I had to be smarter in my the ways I might <laughs> dissent. <laughs> it was hard watching, man. Really hard watching. <laughs> and she knew exactly how to punish you. <laughs> but especially at St. Benedict's, you know, or Benedictine now, you know this as well or better than I do, that we were so lucky to have those monks who were so schooled in so many ways, most of it in Eastern and Western Europe. And I was taught history 101 as a freshman by a, a monk who had a PhD from a university in Austria. And of course, uh, who, who was the black monk, Father Columban? Columban, yeah. Uh, he he was the first black PhD from KU, and he was teaching wow. us. Yeah, and yeah. Benedict's just had this incredible array of faculty members who knew so much about their subject and tried to inculcate that in you. The best teacher I had at Saint Benedict's was not a monk; it was Joe Geist who taught me English in yeah. I think two or three classes and. He became and remains one of my heroes because he was gay. And eventually, I think that led to his departure from Benedictine. But he was just so thoughtful and generous and smart. And his classroom demeanor was memorable. And you didn't want to miss anything hmm. because he would get up there behind the lectern and throw his tie over his shoulder, just start teaching and preaching he was really effective and he used that old socratic method of question answer question answer and that made us be on our toes and yeah. it was actually highly competitive too yeah we well, you know obviously education really has affected you and your success etc the, the catholic education did how about the faith side of it you know you bought into uh, you know, the strong Catholic faith throughout your life, or you've been in and out, or you've been out? I, I wrestled with my faith for years, starting, I guess, in high school and extending all the way through college and law school. And then sometime in, in Vietnam or afterwards, I lost it. 
mm-hmm. and never got it back. I just couldn't understand why any god would let this kind of destruction and death go on. It's an old, old metaphysical question that philosophers of all eras have tried to resolve. The presence of evil in the world. The theology classes I had at St. Benedict's at Benedictine uh, were quite liberal by the standards back then, and they helped broaden my education and also how I felt about certain specific issues in the church. They didn't insist on you always uh, parroting a certain line. Yeah. Tr- trying to think of a monk who was that way. Can you remember any of the theologians? trying to think who I had for the different theology classes. I think Father Richard was one of them. And, you know, those classes really didn't stand out to me much. You know, my faith was not built so much from education or classes. You know, it was from reading the Bible. Yeah. It's the one, one thing that does really, really help me come to terms with what faith is and why I have it. You know, it is interesting when you're talking about how can a good God let so many bad things happen if he is a good God. But as you read, you know, if you, if you go back and read the Bible, I, I love reading the Old Testament because the Old Testament just shows you what a good God he is. But he also says, these are the things that I'm asking you to do. You're not asking them. Just, these are the commands. You follow these commands, and I will be as good as I can possibly and reward you. But if you don't, I'm not going to reward you. And you see that the Israelites just consistently, you know, they're really good, and things are wonderful, and then all at once they start (laughs) doing things that they shouldn't be doing, and bang, they go through 30 or 40 years of really bad time. And then they come back, and they convert back, you know, and then for 50 years it's great. And then it's just... Up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, the lesson that, that I, I learned from that is, well, why do you keep screwing up? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he'll, he'll bless you all you want. Just you know, do, do what he asks. And uh, But, you know, we're all different. I think there is power in prayer. I, I just believe that it can change things, which kind of leads me into the next thing with, with your cancer. It's it coming back. You just found out in the last couple of weeks you had bone marrow cancer. You might share with us just a little bit about that and then, you know, how you feel about that. What's well, your pl- what's your plan? It was stunning to learn that I had it. I have known since uh, early May of last year that my shortness of breath was terrible. I just couldn't do any kind of exertion without having to sit and regain my breath and I found this out when I was going to a physical therapy class to help my balance uh, because of my feet. And the young woman who was the therapist noticed that for the first time I was asking to take a break and sit in a chair between drills. And she called me over and put my figure in a pulse oximeter to test the amount of oxygen in my blood. It disturbed her. She wrote the numbers down on a post-it and told me to go home and call my primary physician and read him the numbers. And so I did. And he said, wow, uh, I want you to go to the ER. And I said, uh, tomorrow? He said, right now. Wow. <laughs> so 
I guess it was April 28th last year, I went to the ER. And, of course, this was at the height of the depth of COVID. COVID. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a couple of tests in the ER. And I was fortunately negative. And my cardiologist was in the building next door. So he was close by and he came in to see me once they put me in a bed in the COVID ward. I was, as far as I know, I was the only non-COVID patient on that fifth floor. But he came in and said, uh, you certainly don't look like you have a heart problem. And so the next morning he put in two stents to my heart. Two of my arteries were quite blocked. Mm-hmm. And I heard from many of my friends who'd gone through this that the stents would make me feel like a new man because they would allow more blood to get to the lungs and uh, help me breathe. Well, that didn't happen. It got worse and worse. And I went to all kinds of ists to find out what was wrong with me, a pulmonologist and a cardiologist and other physicians around here. And Finally, this Indian physician, Dr. Kavor, had me take a blood marrow test. They knocked me out and scraped some marrow off the side of my hip and analyzed it, and that's when he discovered the cancer. So right now, my wife, Geraldine, who is a Mountie, by the way, yeah, uh, we're trying to figure out what to do. The, the first step is next week I start chemo, five days a week, three weeks off. And we'll see how that responds, how my red blood cells respond to that. And it's probably four to six months of that, Joe, and then wait to see what else might be working. You know, I I listen every morning, and I've been doing this for probably 25 years. I listen every morning to Dr. David Jeremiah, who is a Baptist preacher. Yeah. Uh, he is a Bible scholar, absolutely wonderful. But he went through bone marrow cancer himself uh, 15 to 20 years ago. He ended up, I think he got, uh, or they transfer some good <laughs> genes into your, I'm not a doctor, obviously, <laughs> not that type of doctor. But anyway, he went through that and has recovered. So he's, he's probably pushing close to 80 by now. Huh. Still on the radio every day, travels, goes around to different uh, cities and has rallies and stuff. I mean, he's, he's just so dynamic that he, I don't know if you ever beat it, but he beat it. And so I, I pray that the same thing happens for you. Thanks, Joe. As one more testament to our team, Daryl and Jack Dugan sent out messages to everybody. And, of course, I heard from you about it. I heard from Greg Glore, heard from Donnie sharing, and I'm sure I'll hear from some others before too long. But what is this, 54 years later? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're still uh, in touch and oh, yeah. care about our teammates. Um, unfortunately, Jay Evler. We may not hear from him for a while. He's he's going through some of the same things that you are and has been for right a while. now. Yeah, he had a big mass on the back side of his ear a couple of years oh, man. ago. And it's now it's showing up in a lot of different places. So he's been pretty sick and and he and for people that don't know, Jay Everett was a manager for us and he was every bit a part of that team as the player. Oh yeah. So anyway, it's it's, it's that time in life where all of us 
you know, and we just yeah. we have to thank God that he's kept us healthy as long as he has. Well, yet again, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm kind of stunned that you're, you're now taking jujitsu classes every morning <laughs> after continuing to play basketball as a septuagenarian. That's really impressive, Joe. Well, see, my mind still thinks I'm like 25 or 27. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you get this old. Your mind just kind of goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, oh, well, moving on to the lighter side. I, I, there are a couple of things that I, I do want to get in before we end with, with all your experience and everything. What I'm looking for is what type of advice that you would give to someone who wanted to pursue a journalism career. I'd say, uh, don't do it. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just think that the market is now attuned to social justice warrior vibe. And until and unless you have that as a social justice warrior, you're not going to get anywhere in journalism because that's now seen as the goal of being a journalist, is to right wrongs and correct things. That's what we've done forever, journalists, but not to the extent, as we talked about earlier, where opinions matter more than facts, and facts are almost secondary to what you think, which I think is awful for the audience. They want like you described earlier in our conversation, Walter Cronkite, who, who did the news without frills, without favor, just gave you this news straight ahead. And you couldn't tell if he was a Republican or a Democrat. I still don't know. But sadly, the craft that I spent 50 plus years pursuing is now close to being beyond repair, Joe. I think that there aren't many teachers who teach journalism the way that I did, which is to insist on three rules, accuracy, 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 mm -hmm. and everything else will fall into place. So if, if a young person can find an old war horse like me who doesn't put up with that crap and just insists on telling the story without putting yourself into it, I just, I mean, they can get jobs, but it'll be a regrettable choice of profession because it's not the journalism that we grew up with that was unvarnished, that just came without any subjectivity to it. Hmm. So that, regrettably, that would be my answer. Are there any journalism schools that you're aware of that still teach the old values? I think there are. I, I think uh since we're talking about him the walter cronkite school of Ju journalism at the university of arizona would be that way i think that the bob schieffer school of journalism at fort worth at tcu is still insisting on old school values and some at UT, University of Texas, I've got two friends who teach there, and I know that they're not going to put up with a lot of nonsense from their students. Hmm. I hired one of my reporters from one of their classes in 2009, and she worked out really well. Switching uh, careers quickly. Any advice that you'd have for someone who wanted to be a coach since you've been... Uh, 
all kinds of different settings and countries and played for different coaches, etc. Uh, any advice for those people? Well, my favorite college coach remains Bob Knight. And my favorite pro coach remains Red Auerbach because they knew chemistry. They knew physics and which buttons to push for players. And they realized that basketball is a game of angles. So they made their offensive offenses according to angles on the court that would help get a, an open shot. And, of course, Knight has a terrible reputation as a bully and a brutal guy. But I think the good really outweighs the bad with him. He, he never cheated uh, to get wins. And Auerbach was just a genius. Uh, I mean, look at him acquiring Larry Bird as a junior. <laughs> yeah. And he, they, he knew Larry Bird was not going to go to the pros after his junior year, but he saw what he could do for the team. He, he said, I made a couple of other little moves, a little move here, a little move there. And it was, <laughs> it was to, to get Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. <laughs> not, not bad. <laughs> not bad. But I think the lessons that we took away from the coaches at Benedictine are valid in any condition, in any university or high school setting, uh, that you have to reach your players. And you, you wrote in your book that you think it helps a coach's credibility if he played. And I strongly agree with that. In fact, when I was coaching at San Pedro High School, uh, I would routinely guard our big guys in practice. And I'd, I'd make them learn to move their feet in the lane and use the backboard and don't get sidetracked if you get hit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I missed that a lot. It was so fun. And I'm, I'm in touch with probably 15 of the guys on that team. I sent pictures of some of them to you. And it was just a really cool part of my life. Well, as I say in the book, there's just nothing like coaching. You don't have to be in athletics to be a coach. But yeah. to help somebody improve themselves, there's no feeling that's better than that, I don't think. I think that's what you experienced with the high school when you were coaching at the high school level and obviously that's what most of us coaches experience most of us are in it for the right reasons yeah well mike this has just been terrific i've thoroughly yeah, thank you enough joe uh you've given me huge breaks all my life like the 1981 city league team you let me walk on to and this and Whenever we've had the reunions, you've always em embraced me as kind of someone special. But, of course, in your book, you said I treated you like a senior. Well, that's because you acted like one. Well, I, for those that haven't read the book or don't know, there were three seniors on that team, and I had high respect for all three of them. And they all treated me so well. I mean, very, very accepting and everything. And, and not everybody on the team was that way. We had seniors, juniors, and freshmen. We didn't have any sophomores on the team. Well, there were some that uh, treated you like a freshman, you know, regardless huh. of what you did. And you guys never did that. 
you just accepted me as a teammate. It was just, I felt so comfortable around all three of you. And I've always appreciated that. And I, I don't well, know if what, one thing I don't appreciate, Joe, to this day is when we had a reunion game in the, I think, early, mid-70s mid in Atchison. And I, I made a move on the left side, a pivot, and just skied high to bank the ball in. And so out of nowhere, you swatted into the tiles. <laughs> <laughs> that was my best move in a long time. <laughs> Came to nothing. <laughs> well, Mike, it's probably the only block I ever made in my whole life. So thank you. <laughs> well, Mike, I, I just uh, thank you again for spending this time with us. I'm going to be praying hard for your recovery. Thank you. And, and uh, I just want you to know that uh, I treasure your friendship and I love you. Love you too, Joe. Right. Take you take care, good Michael. care. You too.